Okay, before you clap again, I'm going to start talking, all right? So we're going we're gonna to keep on moving along. Let me introduce myself as well, because uh, I know we've got a bunch of new folks in the room. My name is Rob Sweet, and along with Lloyd Shadrach, I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Fellowship. Glad that you're here if you are new. Uh, by the way, if you missed last week's message, we say this often because Lloyd and I tag team, but it was one of those messages that you do not want to miss. We record them all, audio and video, so you have the opportunity. I encourage you, particularly for this one, watch the video. There was an illustration that Lloyd used that was just profound, and I think it'll stay with us for a while, a visual illustration. And I was watching it. I was at our Franklin campus teaching last week, and I was watching that video, and I thought, this is one of those moments I'm just grateful for Lloyd Shadrach, the way that God has uniquely wired him to think and teach and lead and bring in illustrations. Uh, just very grateful for that as well. And I was thinking about this week's text, and uh, I, I wanted also to remind us that we have an opportunity, I almost missed this, so let me go to it right now, to pray together tonight in our elder-led prayer. So you see that on the screen, you have an insert for it. Let me just tell you, tonight is the first time we've done one of these, and we're going to continue, Lord willing, throughout the year, three or four times, to give you an opportunity to be prayed for by our elders. We want to be a praying church. That's what we believe God has put in us and is leading us to be more and more. And so tonight, come in this room. It's going to be both our Franklin and our Brentwood campuses together in this room for this opportunity to pray. Carl's going to lead us in a couple of worship songs, and then we're just going to pray for about 45, 50 minutes. Won't be a real long time. If you want to stay after that service with a specific personal prayer request that you want one of our elders or the whole team of elders to pray with you, for you, we're invited in Scripture in the book of James to do that. You know, if you have a need, come to the elders and let them pray for you. And we want to provide that opportunity tonight. And we'll stay here as long as we have people that need and desire prayer. So look forward to seeing many of you tonight. It's a family-friendly service. Bring your kids. Uh, no child care provided. It's going to be an opportunity for us as a, as a family of faith to pray together. Now, back to Ecclesiastes. As I was thinking about this text and, and, and leaning into it, I remembered uh, the gift that I received on my ninth birthday from my brother, Brian. It was the one thing on my birthday list that I wanted more than anything else. And my brother, who probably knows me, you know, as well as anyone does, at least until I was married, he certainly knew me better than anybody, knew that I wanted that gift and spent all of his money. He was probably seven or eight years old at that time. I'm a couple years older than him. All of his money to get this gift for me. And it, and it is underneath this, uh, this little black, um, whatever that is, napkin, uh, sheet. All right, here it is, the game of life. Okay, raise your hand if you've played this game. Okay, boy, almost everybody, first service as well. Okay, popular game. Now, I remember getting this game as a kid and just thinking, my world is now complete, you know? Because, I mean, think about it. From a child's perspective, you're going to open this game up. You're going to see this board that's got, you know, houses and colleges and universities and retirement homes. In, inside the, the game itself, you have this wonderful spinner. And that's half the reason why I wanted the game. Just like, I just want to spin this thing. I mean, do you remember that feeling when you just give that thing a spin? It's quite satisfying. If you want to spin it after the service, just come up and I'll let you. Uh, you've got these ca cards that have different kinds of houses that you can purchase. You've got a big old stack of money. Now, the denominations in this game start with the $10,000 bill, okay? And it goes up to $500,000 bill. What's not to like about that? Uh, in here, there's a couple little bags of, of goodies. Uh, there are cars, okay? So I'm 9 or 10 years old, and I'm thinking, man, yeah, give me a game with cars in it. Now, these little pegs are supposed to represent people, 
All right, I don't know exactly uh, why, but you've got blue ones, you've got pink ones, you've got big ones and small ones for spouses and kids. And it's the opportunity to literally play the game of life. And I remember thinking, you know, at that age, I, I have left the games of my youth and I'm now in the real game. Okay, now the instruction manual of this is going to uh, tell us what the object of the game is. Here it is. Uh, it says, hit the road for a roller coaster life of adventure, family, unexpected surprises, and pets. I think they added the pets later, all right? This isn't the same version that I played. I don't remember pets. The player with the most money at the end of the game wins. Pretty simple, pretty clear. And I thought about this game this week because I think this is the perfect illustration of what we're doing out there with this pursuit of the good life is we're navigating ourselves around the board, trying to make decisions. Do I go here? Do I go not? Spinning the wheel of chance sometimes, hoping it lands on our lucky number, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Collecting houses, collecting cars, collecting dollar bills, all with the goal in mind of retiring at the end of the game in the millionaire estates and, you know, not the, what's the other option? The, the countryside, countryside acres and millionaire mansion. You know, who wants to be in the countryside acres when you can be in the millionaire mansion, right? Well, I don't know. They both sound great to me. In fact, I was thinking about Williamson County, and I thought, do you think what they did was collect all the best players of the game of life and move them here? Like, all the winners are around us here. You're driving around. I see millionaire mansions. I see countryside estates. I see all kinds of nice things. And this is sort of the, the area that we live in. It's sort of this good life-seeking place. Now, what they don't tell you when you start to play this game as a kid is, is, is real life has some unexpected twists and turns and surprises that aren't in the game. In fact, there's not a lot of bad things that can happen to you when you play this game. I actually played it this week just for fun as I was kind of uh, reminiscing about this. And the worst thing that happened to me in my you know, trip around the board was that I got fired from my job because I snuck a cat into work. <laughs> Which was actually pretty ironic considering what I said about cats two weeks ago. <laughs> Now, the beautiful thing about being fired in the game of life is you are immediately presented with three other options, and I could pick another career card, and I picked another career card. You know, it's like I didn't have to go into the, uh, the jobless line. I didn't have to put my resume out there. I didn't have to worry about providing for my family. In fact, my new career paid more than my old career. You know, the other nice thing about this game is you keep getting these paydays, and there's not a lot of bills. You know, you just like your, your, your means are always greater than your ends. You kind of just go around the board. I did some research and actually the game used to have a, uh, a, a what, they, what they call it, like a poor house option. It used to have a bankruptcy. Did you know they've now eliminated that from the game? Isn't that interesting? You know what else is not in this game? Death. Death. You're going to retire. The only question is, are you going to retire with $1 million or $5 million? Are you going to be in the millionaire's mansion or the countryside estates, you see? You know, oh, you might lose your job, uh, but you're going to get another one right away. Oh, you might have to pay another player uh, for hosting a birthday party. Woo! You know, it, it's sort of, it's life in a cartoonized version. Now, we know this isn't real. You know, anybody over the age of 10 knows this isn't real. The problem is we play the real game of life the same way. It's like the goal at the end is to, you know, like I hear a cruise ship that's down here and you got all these beautiful things around the board and, and we sometimes approach the real game of life in the same kind of cartoonized version. The goal at the end is to just 
be happy and have as much money and toys and comfort as we possibly can get. And that's how we approach the game. That's the, uh, that's the pursuit of the good life. And what Ecclesiastes has been doing for three and a half months is unmasking the pursuit of the good life. So last week when Lloyd had that illustration up here, the, the main idea is all this stuff, the money, the house, the career, the cars, you're not taking any of it with you. In fact, to, to quote John Ortberg, when the game is over, all the pieces go back in the box. And all this goes away. Now, what I want to do is I want to talk about our passage this morning because in this passage, Solomon's going to reflect on the real game of life. And he's essentially going to say that the passage breaks down into two parts. Part one is, here's what the real game of life looks like. You, know, it, 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 you realize this is kind of more like Candyland than it is real life. And that's just true. And then the second part of the passage is Solomon's going to say, there is one thing, however, as hard as real life is, there is one thing you need that will really help you. There's one strategy as you go around the board that actually produces some success, that produces some results. So if you want to know what the best thing is under the sun, according to Solomon, this is our text this morning. So open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 9 if you haven't already. And here's what we do if, you need, if you're new to fellowship. We read the Bible and we explain what's going on and apply it to our lives. We'll, we'll read a verse or a passage. We'll dig in. We'll get to the main idea, you know, do some digging, you know, some work in that. And once we have that main idea, we could say, all right, so what? What's the application for us? It's called expository teaching. Exposition just means explanation. We're going to explain the text and apply the text. That's what we do here. So let's start in verse 11 of Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Now again, here's the context Solomon's about to explain. Here's what's true about the real game of life. It's not like the Milton Bradley version. Here it is in verse 11. I again saw under the sun, that's you know, Solomon's code for, for our fallen, broken planet where you and I live every day, that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. Solomon is saying the first thing you need to know about real life is the spinner in real life is much more wicked than the spinner in the game. You know, there are some tragic things that happen and your strategies that you think should work don't always work. Being the fastest is not a guarantee you're going to win the race. Being the strongest is not a guarantee you're going to win the fight. Being the smartest is not a guarantee you're going to get the highest grade. See, this is what Solomon is saying in verse 11. In fact, he outlines five things that seem like they should result in a winning strategy of life and he's saying they don't always work. Why do they not always work? Because of time and chance. And he's putting those two things together. He's saying time and chance work together to frustrate your efforts to succeed in life regardless of your strategy. Now, to use the analogy of the, the, the literal game, what he's saying is spin that spinner long enough, time and chance are going to make sure that you get some negative outcomes. All right, so here's what happens. People start going around the board of the real game of life and they experience a little bit of success. Maybe things feel like they're coming easy to them. So they feel like they've figured it out. I've got it. I know how the game of life works. And so they write a book about it. Barnes and Noble's filled with these kinds of books. All right, three tips to a healthier this and 
five strategies for getting all the things that you want in life. And what Solomon is saying is, you go around the board long enough, you're going to find out the race is not always to the swift. The battle is not always to the warrior. There's something else going on, and he's calling it time and chance. Now, he's talking about chance from a secular perspective. Okay, lean into that tension a little bit. We know as followers of Christ and reading the Bible that God is sovereign over all. There is no chance ultimately from a theological perspective. But what Solomon is doing is he's saying, listen, from the perspective of a limited human being who can't see all that's out there, it sure feels like this is a bunch of luck. It sure feels like that it's a spinning of a wheel, doesn't it? It sure feels like chance rules the day. I think that's what he's doing theologically. He's saying, you know, don't forget, you can't understand the ways of God. So from our perspective, it feels like chance. It feels like it's luck. Now he's going to go on in the same theme in verse 12. The news doesn't get any better. Moreover, man does not know his time like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare. So the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Okay, here's the analogy. You're a fish, and you're swimming right along, happy as can be. You know, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. And then all of a sudden, you're in a net. And that net gets lift out, lifted out of the water, and suddenly you can't breathe. And you start squirming around, and the end is near. Solomon is saying this is how life works. He's comparing you to fish. How do you feel about that? Well, I don't like being a fish. Okay, well, you can be a bird caught in a snare. All right, what Solomon is saying here is he's like, there's unexpected tragic events, tragic turns. The most prominent one is death. So if you think, man, I've kind of escaped life so far without a lot of tragedy, there is one coming for you, Solomon will say. It's death, and you can't predict when it will happen. You'll be swimming along, and then you're going to get sick. You'll be swimming along, and then you're going to get you know, a tumor will show up on the radar, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Solomon's point is, although you want to be in control of your life, you aren't. In fact, I think where he's going here is everybody wants to be the master of our own destiny, but in real life, we're, we're, we kind of make laughable gods. We can't control, we can't predict, we can't see the future. There's a lot that's out of our control, and this has been a theme in the book, which is one of the reasons this has been a hard book. But it's true. It's true. And so what these two verses do to set this passage up is they instill in us a greater degree of humility. And that's something we all need. We all need a little more humility. You're ultimately not the one in control of your trip around the board to a certain degree. You know, and some of you, and all of us to a degree, want to push against that. And say, so, are you saying I don't have a choice in anything in the matter, that I, I don't make choices down the road, you know? And, and I would say, no, that's not what I'm saying. What Solomon is saying is, you are not in control of everything. And he's reminding us of this. This is how the real game of life works. There's something else at work. And, and we're going to go more theological toward the end of the message. For now, we're just entering into Solomon's perspective, and he's choosing in these verses to rep represent a pretty harsh secular perspective about life under the sun. Now, he's going to go on. Uh, 13 to 18 verses, are uh, they represent a short parable. And, and in this parable is going to be Solomon's secret. So he's going to say, all right, despite the fact that you can't control all the outcomes... All right? No, it doesn't matter if you're the fastest, the smartest, the most powerful. You can't control all the outcomes. There's one thing, however, 
that you should do. One thing that's better than all the others. And, and he's going to unpack this in the parable. So let's read verse 13. Also this I came to see as wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. Okay, that's a setup for what he's about to say. Uh, your radar should go off if you've been tracking through this book with us. When you hear the words, it impressed me, Solomon's not impressed by much. From verse, literally chapter 1, verse 1, everything is vanity, vanity, vanity. Wealth, vanity, which means vapor, okay, meaninglessness. He goes on to say, Power, vanity. Pleasure, vanity. Relationships, work, careers, you name it. Everything, Solomon says, is vanity. And then you get to chapter 9, verse 13, and he says, this impressed me. Something impressed him. What in the world was it that impressed him? We're going to see in the next verse, verse 14. There was a small city with few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, and constructed large siege works against it. Pause there for a minute. Um, when you're studying a verse, one thing to look at as you're looking through any passage of the Bible is note wherever you see contrast. And there's a lot of contrast in this verse. So you have a small city compared to a great king. You have few men compared to large siege works. Let's talk about the siege works. Don't think about medieval siege works or even Roman siege works. That would be the wrong place in history. If you dig into the literal Hebrew, it's the Hebrew word for nets. It's the same word that's used about a fish caught in a net from a couple verses earlier. Uh, so probably what's going on here, it's the picture, and this is what would happen historically at this time, was a conquering army would come and surround a city, and they would put a net over it figuratively. In other words, they would cut off all the life sources. They would cut off the water and cut off the food. This is why if you go to Israel today, you can find some ingenious engineering in, in Jerusalem and some other places that the ancient, ancient kings did to make sure they had fresh water that they could get into their city, underground caverns and some other things that were remarkable, so that an enemy couldn't cut them off. Because if an enemy could cut off your water source and your food source, you're just like a fish being pulled in a net out of the water. You can't breathe anymore. You have nothing to, nothing to eat, nothing to drink. They're going to starve you out. It's just a matter of time. And that's how warfare was conducted uh, circa 1000 you know, BC here in the time of Solomon. So he's saying that this great king with a great army, small town, few people, the great king enemy executed this net strategy brilliantly. Let's see what happens next, verse 15. But, first word of verse 15 is another word of contrast. It should get your attention. But, the outcome's not going to happen. What you think's going to happen. But, there was found in it the city, a poor wise man, and he delivered the city. How did he deliver the city? By his wisdom. Yet, another word of contrast, no one remembered that poor man. Okay, this was amazing. One little poor man somehow figured out a way to escape the net. Now, I wish Solomon, in this case, gave us the, the strategy. You know, was it military? Was it a, a technology thing? Was it diplomacy? Who knows? Solomon's not interested in telling us how it happened. He's just saying that it happened. So the contrast is great king, big army, small town, few people. But wisdom was the X factor. The wisdom of one just a tiny little mustard seed size wisdom, tiny little wisdom was enough to overthrow the powerful enemy king. So Solomon is going to say, he's going to build out the rest of the verses. The most important thing in life, although it's never a guarantee, but the best thing under the sun is 
wisdom. That's it. That's the thing. But notice how overlooked wisdom tends to be. Right here in this verse, you know, even though this man won the victory for the city, he was quickly forgotten. So what Solomon is saying here is, pay attention. The best thing under the sun is usually missed. Okay, now he's going to go on. Listen to the next verses. It's really going to bring this home. And, and I want you, to, if you take notes in your Bible, and I would encourage you to mark it up and, you know, just, just make, make that page as, as messy as you can if you're learning things and, and circling things. I want you to underline or circle the word better in these next three verses because that's the key word of this passage starting in verse 16. So I said, wisdom is better than strength. But the wisdom of the poor man is despised and his words are not heeded. Verse 17, the words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. You get in the contrast that he's building into this? Verse 18, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. So you can feel the tension. Solomon's like, there's one thing that's better. You know, life under the sun, not everything is equal. You know, power and strength and wealth and relationships, they're all here, but there's one thing better. Wisdom. But it's often overlooked. But it's often despised. But it's quickly forgotten. See what Solomon is doing here. Now, you know, he's saying that the wisdom is the thing you need most as you navigate the game of life, the real game of life. It might seem a little bit underwhelming that that's Solomon's grand answer. That's his secret strategy. Just wisdom doesn't seem very good. I think the reason it doesn't seem that good to us is because we don't understand what Solomon meant when he talked about wisdom. Um, in our day and age, wisdom is associated with what? The first service, they said owls. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's associated with owls. You know, it's associated with, with old people, you know. It, it's sort of like it, you have this, this idea that wisdom is, is kind of slow. Wisdom is quasi-spiritual. You know, it's not that, maybe it's not that practical, tangible always. It, it sort of just feels a little bit quasi-spiritual. Um, wisdom doesn't sound very exciting. I mean, who, who wants to be an owl, you know? Now, from Solomon's perspective, however, wisdom's the best thing. It's the greatest. It's the most beautiful. It's the most attractive. You know, it's like if you think, like, how, what would wisdom look like in a, in a car? You know, if you're going to have a car that personified the idea of wisdom, it's going to be the Model T, not the the, the, the Lamborghini, right? And so we're going around in our pursuit of the good life. We're like, okay, if I get to choose any car that I want, I'm not choosing that Model T over there. Give me this one. You know, this one's more attractive. Solomon is saying, no, 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 no. Don't overlook. Don't overlook this wisdom thing over here. It's a really, really big deal. Now, why is wisdom so important for life? That may sound like a silly question, but I want to take you a little bit deeper. Okay, I want to take you to the key moment in Solomon's life. It happened years before he wrote this text. He was a young king. His father David had just died. He'd just been given you know, rulership over Israel. And a remarkable thing happened to him. In fact, so remarkable, it's recorded in two different, two different books of the Bible. It, it's in 
in both the book of 1 Kings in chapter 3 and in the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 1. And here's the context. God came to Solomon in a dream early, early in his kingship and his rule. And God said, Solomon, I'm going to let you ask for anything you want and I'll give it. And he didn't put any limitations on it. You know, this wasn't, this wasn't some, you know, shell trick. You know, this was God literally saying, what do you want? As you start your rulership over Israel, you can have it. And, uh, and, and what did Solomon ask for? He asked for wisdom. He asked for the Model T. And here's God's response to this, to this choice from 1 Kings chapter 3. God said to him, because you've asked this thing, and have not asked for yourself a long life, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies. You didn't ask for the Lamborghini. You didn't you know, ask for the Mustang. You didn't ask for you know, whatever else. But instead have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I've done according to your words. Behold, I've given you a wise and discerning heart so that there is uh, been no one like you before, nor shall one like you arise after. I've also given you, this is where it gets interesting, I've also given you what you've not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. So God's saying, because you choose the Model 3, you get, or the Model T, you get the whole garage. Now, I've always thought in the past that that was just God, like, you know, Solomon gave some impressive spiritual answer, and so, you know, God hit the jackpot button. But I think there's more going on. And, and, and to illustrate this, I want to go back to, to our Milton Bradley game of life. Okay, here's what essentially happened in this moment in time uh, in Solomon's life. God opened the box of the game of life, the real game of life for Solomon. And God said, choose whatever you want in this box, okay? You know, and looking around here, all right, there's careers, there's houses, there's these fancy cards there, there's bills. I mean, all the cash you could possibly want, you know, from $10,000 all the way up to $500,000. You got cars, you, know, you got all these little people. And I think what God is saying is, you want the millionaire mansion? Take it. You want all the money in the bank? Take it. Carte blanche, whatever you want. And here's what Solomon does. He looks around at all the pieces and he says, here's what I want. I want the instruction manual. Smart. He says, I want to know how to play the game. I want to know the strategy that's going to help me get around this board with success. I want wisdom. And so, y'all, from Solomon's perspective, wisdom's not some mysterious quasi-spiritual thing. Wisdom's the best you can get because it teaches you how to actually live. Now, think about this. The first time you ever play this game, you're not very good at it, are you? Because you don't know whether to choose this path or that path. The tenth time you've played the game, you know what you're doing. Solomon is saying, I want to be able to play the game the first time like it's my tenth time. I want to know the strategies. I want to know the instruction book forwards and backwards. I want wisdom. That's what wisdom is. So, you know, we look down on it like it's some slow thing for owls and old people, so to speak. Solomon's like, you're missing the boat. This is the secret. And so when God says, I'm going to give you all these other things too, I think part of what he's saying is, Solomon, you've unlocked the secret. So listen to what Solomon writes in Proverbs 3, 13 to 16, okay? Track along with this, and, and I think you're going to understand how he understands wisdom. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom... 
and the man who gains understanding for her profit is better than the profit of silver. He means that literally. Her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels. He's not spiritualizing this. This, this is actual tangible practical. Nothing you desire compares with her. This is how you know he's not spiritualizing it. Listen to verse 16. Long life is in her right hand and in her left hand are riches and honor. So Solomon is saying, if you want to win the game, if you want the millionaire mansion at the end, you want to live a long time, you want riches and honor and a long life, you better have some wisdom. You better know how to play the game. You better know the rules. And so he asked the designer of the game for wisdom as he goes around the board. All right, you tracking with this analogy? Now, here's essentially what's happening. Would you rather have the golden egg or the goose that lays the golden egg, okay? And, and, and we put it in that terms. Everybody's like, well, that's easy. That's what Solomon was asking for. Now, some of you are like, no, Rob, you're not going prosperity gospel on us, are you? Heaven forbid, <laughs> you know, literally, that, that, that I would do that. That's not where this passage is going. Remember, this is life under the sun. This is the physical, tangible place where we live. And Solomon is saying, look, nothing's guaranteed, but there's one thing, one strategy, one play that's going to help you more than anything else, and that is wisdom. Get some wisdom, and it just might preserve your life, and it just might help things go well for you in life under the sun. All right? That's the Old Testament perspective on wisdom for the most part. It goes deeper than that. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Now, connect this idea of wisdom to our text in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Here's what Solomon is doing. He's reflecting on yet another illustration of the power of wisdom. And he's saying wisdom's better than strength. Wisdom's better than political power. Wisdom's better than weapons. In other words, he's saying wisdom is the greatest competitive advantage one can have in the game of life. So when Solomon told God... You know, that he chose wisdom above everything else. He wasn't trying to go spiritual on him to get the right Sunday school answer. He literally believed wisdom to be the most practical, most valuable thing in life. And here at the end of his life, he still believes it. He says, one thing impresses me. One thing impresses me. Wisdom. Here's the big idea for our text, all right? Big idea for our text. Although often overlooked... Wisdom's the best thing under the sun. Although often overlooked, wisdom really is the best thing under the sun. Now, we're going to put that parameter on it, under the sun. Okay? And we're going to unpack that and explain that a little bit more. But let's not miss the big idea of our text. Solomon, inspired by God, is saying, you can choose a lot of things in life. You can go after a lot of things in life. Wisdom's the best one that you could chase. Wisdom's the best one that you can go after. Why is it the best thing under the sun in our context? Because it can literally save you. It can literally save your skin in the example Solomon gave. The poor wise man saved the whole city. Wisdom might prolong your life and it will help you maximize the enjoyment of life. This is why Solomon commended it. And I know some of you out there are thinking, that just sounds so secular. It's also biblical. But there's more to the story. You knew I was going to get there, right? Yeah, there's more to the story. There's actually even more hope. Before we get to that, though, I want to ask, how do we apply the big idea of this text, which is wisdom's the best thing under the sun? Like, literally, how do we apply it? Well, if you're like me, you want to say, well, how do I get more wisdom? If Solomon says it's the best thing I can have, 
Where do I get more wisdom? Um, I want to give you four four thoughts around that from this passage. I'm going to whip through these fast because I want to get to one more theological turn at the end. Okay, so, so four tips on gaining wisdom really quickly. Number one, ask God. Yeah, this is a huge lesson from Solomon's life. If you don't take anything else away from the life of Solomon, ask God. Listen, listen to James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you know, this is New Testament. James is writing this. You should ask God, just like Solomon did. Ask God. And, and I love the back half of this verse. It's why I, I pray this verse all the time. I do. Ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given. Have you ever claimed James 1.5? God's, God's saying, I'm going to give it to all generously without finding fault. So you're walking into a life situation. You don't know what to do. Have you ever just claimed this promise in James 1.5 and said, God, you, you say without finding fault, so I may not have the best motivation. I may not have all my ducks in a row, but you're saying you're not going to find fault in all that. And you're going to give wisdom to me generously. So you got to ask God. Ask God for wisdom. Have you ever done that? Well, not often enough. I haven't done it often enough, even though I do it very frequently. That's number one, ask God. We have to start there. Number two, read this book. Read this book. Proverbs 2, verse 6, again, Solomon writing, the Lord gives wisdom. We already know that, right? But listen to this next phrase. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And those are just synonyms for wisdom. From his mouth. Okay, how do we hear from God's mouth today? Right here. The author of life has given us the living word of God. Have you picked up on how we're saying that? Bless you. Wow, that was a good one. Um, week in, week out, this is the living word of God for us today. This is the living word of God for us today. The author of life, the author of the game, all right, has given us this book. How well do you know it? You can never know it enough. It doesn't matter how much you've read it, how long you've read it. Where else are you going to go to understand how life works? Don't go to Barnes & Noble in the self-help aisle. Go here. All right? Not that there's nothing of value there, but, but can, we, can we root our life strategies in the living word of God for us today? That's what we're about at Fellowship Bible Church. All right, that's number two. So you've got number one, ask God. Number two, read this book. Number three, spend time with wise people. That sounds so obvious, but notice the people in Solomon's story did not do it. As soon as that wise, poor man saved them from the enemy, he was quickly forgotten. We do the same thing in our culture. Um, listen to this. Our culture has an over-obsession with youthfulness. Okay? You don't spend a bunch of money to look older. Okay? <laughs> Nobody does that. All right, you, you turn on your TV, you know, put on internet pages. Who's being set up as, as what we need to look like, we need to be like, the characters we want to model our lives after? It's youthfulness. Our culture has an over-obsession with youthfulness. Most of the people that have wisdom are older than you. Why? Because they've been around the board, y'all. They can help you. 
Why would you not want to tap into that wisdom? Why would you not want to spend more time with older people and ask them great questions? Very practical takeaway from this passage. Don't overlook the wisdom of people around just because they may not look like the people that you want to be like. They actually are. They actually are. That's straight from our text this morning. So number three, spend time with wise people. And number four, don't waste the life lessons from your own life. Now, what does that mean? How would you waste the life lessons from your own life? Um, all of us have made the same mistake twice. You know, we, we've done something dumb and we're like, I'm never going to do that again. And then like a month later, a year later, five years later, like, I didn't learn my lesson. Okay, how do you learn your lesson? I, first of all, I don't think in our culture we do enough reflection. Okay, we've got so much media all around us that we don't live reflective lives, we live reactive lives. And so when you're living just a reactive life and you never reflect, you're going to be making the same mistakes over and over. You're not actually uh, um, growing in wisdom. What you're doing is you're exp experiencing the same life year after year after year after year. So, you know, I'm 42 years old. The question is, you know, have I had 42 years of wisdom or, or if I, have I had 42 single years without reflection? And so what I started doing, and, and I, I'm not showing you this for any reason other than I think it might give you an idea and maybe inspire a few of you. 15 years ago, I started a file on my computer, which I don't think I've ever shown anybody until this morning, and I titled it Rob's Life Lessons, okay? This is nothing that's ever going to be published in fact, I'm not even going to read it to you, okay? It's pretty personal. What, what, I, what I started doing was the end of every year, so starting in 2003, when I get to the end of the year, I do a little reflection. I say, what were the main lessons I learned about life, about God, about me, about, about what it means to be the man that God wants me to be? And I went back and, and read all these this week, and it was remarkable. It was remarkable because I see, you know, God gave me that piece of wisdom at that moment in time in that year that I needed. And I go to the next year, and I'm remembering, oh, this is the year that I left Chick-fil-A and went to seminary, and look what God was teaching me. Look how he led me in this way. Well, what a gift this is to me now as I read back on it, because I simply took the time to be a little bit reflective and capture the life lessons that God has taught me. So that's tip number four. Don't waste the life lessons that are right in front of you. All right. Four tips. Ask God. Read the word. Spend time with wise people. Don't waste your own lessons. Here's how we're going to close the message. To do justice to this text and to the entirety of the scripture, we have to acknowledge that wisdom is not the only thing you need. We have to acknowledge, as great as wisdom is, it still has limitations. The kind of wisdom that Solomon was talking about might save a city one day, but that man still died at some point. Every individual in that city may have lived to fight another day, but the end was still coming for them. If only wisdom could preserve our lives forever and guarantee us an eternal future, but it cannot. So fast forward a thousand years from the time of Solomon, you have a man come named Jesus Christ and his best friend John is reflecting on the life of Christ. And you know what John says about the coming of Jesus? He says he was the word made flesh. Okay, where does wisdom come from? The mouth of God. Jesus was wisdom incarnated. Jesus was the word of God in flesh form. He was wisdom personified. 
And so what did wisdom, capital W, wisdom, the word of God in flesh, what did he do? He lived life the way it was meant to be lived. And that didn't mean getting the millionaire estate. It meant going the other direction, becoming downwardly mobile. That's, that's what uh, you know, Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus' life was all about. Why did he do that? So we could trade places with him through faith in Christ. All right. So yes, you need wisdom to navigate this life, but you know what? You need more than that. You need to know the one who is wisdom. And this is why we keep coming back to the gospel every single week, week in, week out. It turns out there is something under the sun better than wisdom. It's the one who is wisdom. All right? it, it turns out that that is actually where you're going to find ultimate life. I want to send you out with the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. May the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you will know the riches of His glory and inheritance and the surpassing greatness of His power to all who believe. Amen. That's a great word to end on. Have a great week. Hope to see you tonight at our prayer time.